Wow, what a fantastic worship time together. Uh, just brings back some really special memories uh, for me. You know, I, I uh, was called into ministry as a teenager uh, and w- was privileged to grow up in a really solid Bible teaching church, a large church with uh, several hundred young people in the youth group and all the attendant things that come with that, you know, basketball leagues, softball leagues, but there was one particular uh, youth leader, a staff member, that really built me up in the faith and mentored me, and and I can remember many times when the young people would get together uh, Sunday nights before church, and we would gather in a room, and we would just sing praises like that, and it was always such a special, a special time. Boy, those of you that are joining us by live stream, you don't know what you're missing uh, with the Plum Creek Chapel worship team, so thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And the songs, as often is the case, are, are right on point with what we're going to be talking about today. You know, as I was uh, thinking about this next section of Acts, Acts chapter 20, uh, in fact, really even last week, looking at some passages in chapter 19, a theme started to kind of emerge in my mind of uh, some of the things that were really unique to that first century church, um, uh, and that is this idea of uh, community, closeness. Uh, this camaraderie uh, that the early church seemed to have. I first picked up on it, as I said, in chapter 19 when uh, we read there in the context of the riot in Ephesus, it said some of the officials uh, of Asia who were his friends, talking about Paul's friends. Um, So that word friends just kind of jumped off the page at me. And as I started thinking about what life must have been like back then and kind of overlaying that with what we are experiencing today in the church, the body of Christ at large, 2,000 years later, I feel like the sense of community is really missing uh, in many churches today. Um, You know, we all long for community. It may be covered over and hidden deep within us due to various heartaches and trials and letdowns of life, the hurts and pains that we've gone through, but that longing is still there. People tend to isolate themselves when they're hurting. That's the fleshly response. But the biblical response is to look for community, to come together when you're facing a trial. Uh, When you're hurting, that's when you need community the most. You need help. You need friends. You need encouragement. The Bible says a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire and rages against all sound wisdom or all wise judgment. So community, uh, community. I I cannot help but think that as I look at the big picture of what's going on in the world, I look at the signs of the times, you know, I talk often about Bible prophecy and what's coming down the pike, that we're seeing not only a setting of the stage prophetically for all of the prophecies of Scripture that are laid out uh, clearly in the Bible, remember 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy, But I can't also help but think that maybe there's a setting of the stage within the church because there seems to be a growing divide between the apostate church, the churches that are doing many things that are not biblical, they've really become nothing more than glorified social clubs, and the true Christian church that is upholding the Word of God, proclaiming a clear, accurate, and urgent gospel, sounding the alarm about the soon coming of Jesus Christ, and working together, gathering together to be prepared, you know, in certain ways for what's coming. Because we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. 
It sure seems like it's going to be soon, but we don't have God's timetable. Only He has that. And uh, if the Lord tarries is coming, there may be some difficult days ahead. There will be, at least if uh, the powers that be have their way. Uh, so I think it's interesting that we see community really developing like, like we see here at Plum Creek Chapel. I love our church. I mean, we have, I think, the best church in, in the world, honestly, just in terms of our closeness, our fellowship. Um, you know, I, I appreciate uh, uh, what Brianna's doing with continuing to foster that even with these fellowship meals. Uh, but we, we already have it naturally. I mean, we already uh, come together, and that's why we're, it's hard to get started on time sometimes because everybody's hugging necks and listening to stories and talking to people. And, and then after church, sometimes the last person doesn't leave till 1 o'clock. So I've decided starting today I'm going to preach till 1 o'clock. I hope that's, I mean, that's only fair, right? If you're going to stay, I might as well be preaching, right? Not really. But in, in this passage... I see several indications of what real, authentic community looks like. Remember, the, one of the challenges with preaching through a historical portion of the Bible is that it's historical narrative. It's telling us things that happened in God's plan of the ages, and in this case, in the early church. Uh, so we have to look at you know the descriptions there and draw principles based on what we see taught explicitly elsewhere. And as I look at this section, I see a lot of references to what I'm calling uh, community. Um, before we get to our text, though, let's take a moment just to kind of review uh, where we've been. I know we've picked up, picking up new people all the time, and plus it just helps me kind of keep it in perspective because we've been in Acts for, you know, 20 chapters now. But it all began essentially in Acts chapter 2 with the founding of the church. That was May 24th in the year 33 uh, A.D., and then, uh, you know, of course, chapter 1 was immediately after the ascension of Christ. They go back to the upper room in Jerusalem. They choose a replacement for Judas. And then, of course, the day of Pentecost happens and the church is founded. Uh, and then we see lots of things happening in the early days of the church. Peter and John doing miracles, some persecution very early on, the salvation of uh, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. The, uh, uh, Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus. We see several things happening, the Cornelius, Peter's vision of the sheet, but we really have spent the last few months in earnest talking about Paul's missionary journeys after he got saved. So if you remember, his first missionary journey is covered in chapters 13 and 14. He goes to southern Galatia. He experiences persecution, he and Barnabas, uh, and he's stoned at one point. And by the way, just to clarify, this is Colorado. We're talking about they threw rocks at him. That's what I mean when I say Paul was stoned. But anyway, uh, and then uh, in chapter 15, we get to the Jerusalem Council, which takes place before, I mean, between his first and second missionary journey. They go back to Jerusalem, and the church is early on. You know, this is just 17 years into the church, and they're talking about this notion of Jew and Gentile in one body, and what does that look like, and how, does the, how do we do church with this mixture of you know, old school uh, Judaism versus this new uh, freedom that we have in Christ. And then he embarks on a second journey, which gets us through uh, midway through chapter 18. Lots of exciting things we looked at in that section. Remember Paul's Macedonian call, which really changed the direction of church history. Uh, the story of the Philo Philo uh, Philippian jailer and his salvation. They're accused of turning the world upside down in Thessalonica. Remember we talked about the Bereans who are eagerly searching the Word of God. Paul's famous sermon in Acts 17 from Mars Hill. Uh, and then he writes on this second missionary journey uh, two letters, the Thessalonian epistles, First and Second Thessalonians, while he's in 
Corinth on his second missionary journey. And then, currently, we're in the midst of the third missionary journey, which is uh, middle of Acts 18 all the way to the end of, uh, or middle of chapter 21. Uh, we talked last week about his extended stay in Ephesus. He stayed there about two and a half years. We looked recently at his, the encounter uh, with the demons and the, the seven sons of Sceva, and then the big riot that we talked about last week with the mob mentality. And today, we come, it's the 1st of May uh, in 56 AD, and he's departing from Ephesus. And I want to just pull out of here by observation four ways to find community, or at least four ways that we see the early church uh, finding community. One of the interesting things about community is that it does not usually find you. You have to find it. The natural thing to do in the flesh is to isolate yourself. Now be honest, how many of you who are awake to the way the world is really functioning, awake to the, awake to the Luciferian conspiracy as Satan tries to take over this world and usher in a one world system, those of you that are aware of that and have studied that, understand the biblical teaching about that, of those of you that, that understand that, how many of you haven't had thoughts recently, or have had thoughts recently, I should say, of moving to a mountaintop, selling all your belongings, and just waiting for Jesus to come away from this sin-stricken world? Be honest, how many? Okay, uh, the rest of you are liars. But anyway, uh, of course we have. Of course we have. That's what we, we it's the fight or flight instinct, right? And, and we see things falling apart all around us, like I talk about in this, this new book. And, and it's so easy to just kind of hide out. But according to the Bible, we, we have to take that step of finding community. Proverbs says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. Must himself be friendly, and isolating yourself doesn't make you very friendly. So what do we look for? Where do we start as we look for community? First of all, we look for people with shared set of beliefs. As we were singing up the People of God song, what a great chorus that is. One faith that we have together, the shared set of beliefs. So let's pick it up in verse 1. After the uproar had ceased, this is the big riot in Ephesus, Paul called the disciples to himself. Disciples. Interesting word. Now we, we looked many weeks ago back in Acts chapter 11 as Paul after he was saved kind of makes the church in Antioch in Syria his home church and it's from there that he and Barnabas embark on that first missionary journey. But in Acts chapter 11 Luke the historian tells us that the disciples, that is disciples of Jesus, were first called Christians in that church. A disciple just means follower. And it's a, a word that's used extensively in the Gospels and Acts, but not a single time in the epistles. Because in the first century, the term disciple literally meant to physically, in close proximity, follow the teacher. It was not a term that originated with Jesus. There were disciples of other teachers and rabbis and people in centuries before that. But uh, it was a common term in the first century. And so those who were intrigued by or curious about Jesus' message, they would follow him. They would leave their belongings, kind of pack up a sack lunch or maybe a bedroll and follow him for days on end. Where he stopped, they would stop and they would listen to him. They were his disciples. Some of those believed in him as the only one who could save them. And they were born again. Others of them didn't, but they were still curious and they followed him. So that term disciple, by its very nature, implies community. These were people that were all following the same message, the same 
uh, person, the same teacher. They all had the same core set of values. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago from Acts chapter 19 about the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, uh, as Paul was uh, arriving, he says it happened. He came to Ephesus and he find finding some disciples of John the Baptist. It goes on to say, uh, and in all there were about twelve of them. So these were twelve men that were disciples of John the Baptist. Why were these 12 men hanging out together in a small, close-knit group? Because they had a shared set of beliefs. They had shared standards. They, they all heard the message of John the Baptist. They all agreed with what he said. And they decided to follow him. They were John's disciples. Remember what Jesus said in the upper room just hours before he would be betrayed in the garden. He said to his uh, 11 faithful disciples, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, love was one of the defining characteristics of his disciples. Not love in general for everyone, although that's also something that believers should strive for according to Scripture. But in this context, he's talking about love for one another. If you have love for one another, people will know that you're my disciples. You're part of this community. The early disciples experienced true community because they all followed the same teacher. They shared his beliefs, Jesus Christ. So what about you? Are you looking for others with shared standards? Or are you seeking to fulfill that inner longing of community by focusing on people outside of the community of faith? If so, that's a dangerous place to be. See, the closest people in our lives ought to be people who are part of the family of God. Our closest circle of friends ought to be people who share a common set of beliefs. If we go back to verse 1, notice how Paul interacted with these disciples. It says, he embraced them. He embraced them. Because of those shared set of beliefs, there was a closeness. And so, uh, when Paul departed, he departed with an embrace. Now, you know, when you think about it, we don't usually embrace strangers, right? I mean, some people do. I guess they're just huggers, but uh, most people don't. I mean, imagine, imagine this scene. You're in line at the grocery store, and, uh, you know, it's a long line, like it seems to always be this case these days, even the self-checkouts. And you finally get up there, but while you're, while you're in line, you're kind of striking up a surface-level conversation with the person behind you, right? Uh, you know nice weather today, you know, whatever, just surface level stuff. Uh, it's a stranger and you're just killing time, right? You finally get up to the checkout, you check out, you're ready to go, and just, you decide out of the blue to turn around to that person you just met 10 minutes ago behind you and just give them a big hug. I'm going to my car now, goodbye. <laughs> I mean, they'd probably call the police, <laughs> right? You, you don't embrace strangers, you embrace friends, those who are part of our community, and in this case, the community of faith. Now, I want to dig a little deeper into this word embrace because it's an interesting word. Aspatsamai is the actual Greek word. It's used 60 times, and you may not notice it because this is one of the only cases where it's translated embrace. Usually, aspatsamai is translated greet. But the actual nuance of it, if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, it's to greet warmly with a kiss or with an embrace. But you see it all over the New Testament. We saw it just recently in uh, chapter 18 when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church. Same word, aspatsamai, as he was embarking on his third 
missionary journey. See, when you have a shared set of beliefs, there is a closeness there that cannot be faked or fabricated or forced. It's just natural. And I, I can tell you this, just speaking at conferences for many years all across the country, perfect strangers that I don't know, but because I know they're a brother and sister in Christ and we have that common set of beliefs, we do often greet with a hug. You know, never met them before. They'll come up to me, man, I've been, you know, reading your stuff or I saw you on this show or whatever. And man, thanks for what you do. And they give me a hug. And I'm happy with that because I'm thinking, okay, there's a common bond here. That common bond, of course, is the Holy Spirit. But this idea of a spotsamai uh, greeted is, is, I think, what is implied, this warm greeting by the passages that People, you know, that we read in the epistles, like greet one another with a holy kiss, or greet, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. People really obsess over, oh, that word kiss, what does that mean? I think that's not the point. This, there's various cultural ways that throughout history people express closeness or warmness or community. The point is, if you want to find community, look for people with shared standards. That idea comes up again and again in the New Testament. For example, in Jude's epistle, he says, Beloved, I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation. What's he talking about there? Our common set of beliefs. That we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That only Jesus can save us. And he did so by paying our personal penalty for sin on the cross, rising again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And now he offers freely to all the gift of eternal salvation, if anyone will believe in him for it. Our common salvation. Or Paul's... Uh, 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 letter here to Titus to Titus a true son in our common faith our common faith what is that? that's a shared set of beliefs so if you're looking for community look for people with a shared set of beliefs start there that's going to jump start the relationship but secondly, as we read on in our text this morning, I think we need to look for people with a shared setting. You don't have to look far for community. Sometimes community is sitting right next to you. you know, there's a geographic component to community. We read on in chapter 20, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them, with many words, he came to Greece and stayed there three months. So Paul spends five months in Macedonia, and then three months in Greece, which is Corinth. There's a certain element of community that is physical, tangible. It's local. It's geographic. And, you know, when we use the term community, sometimes we mean our like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, as I just described. I could be traveling in an, you know, across the country, and someone who knows the Lord Jesus is part of the family of God. There's that community, that closeness. But sometimes we use the term community to mean the, the, the literal community, like Sedalia or Castle Rock or the broader area or Colorado, that kind of thing. You know, a community is a place that, where you share stores and schools and parks and a post office and things like that. You know, for our family, our ministry journey has taken us over, over many years throughout uh, the country. And early on in my ministry, it took me overseas even. And we have friends and brothers and sisters in Christ from coast to coast, people that we truly have a closeness to, that we've maintained connections to, that we text and email and Wendy Facebooks with. But there's nothing like coming home 
to a local community of believers that we can see and feel and touch and we can collaborate with and joke with, you know. Uh, I love talking to Steve every Sunday about the 49ers, mainly because I feel sorry for the poor brother. I mean, he's a 49ers fan. I mean, poor guy. I'm just kidding. No, I mean, we, we, we get to catch up and we get to share things. And that's why when we pray, sometimes our prayer time goes a little long, but it's because we know that you can't share these types of prayer requests with perfect strangers. You can share them with the body of Christ, with our local family of believers. Um, we have people that are part of the Plum Creek Chapel family that have never been here. So they're not uh, looking for community in a shared setting because their circumstances are such that they can't. Uh, maybe there's no church at all near them. Maybe they're homebound because of an illness or uh, disability of some kind. Uh, we have, at Not By Works Ministries, we have several people that we've corresponded with continuously for several years now that are in prison. Well, they're certainly not going to be able to come to this setting, but they're part of the community. But as I, as I watch Paul's journey and I watch the early church, there was this unmistakable notion of a physical community. It's not a either or, it's a, a both and. So is it possible that in your quest for community, which whether you realize it or not, if you're honest, deep down in, we all have, is it possible that you're overlooking the prospects in your immediate surrounding? And I've, I just love watching you know, people get to know new folks as they come here, and there's just a closeness that is developing. But number three, I think we need to look for people with a shared situation. Once again, in Paul's travels, we see trouble arising, this time in Corinth. And that difficult situation caused a group of people to rally together and help Paul with his travels. It says, when, he had, when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So the Jews plotted against him. He caused Paul to change his itinerary. But notice all the people that Luke mentions who were a part of the situation that resulted from this plot. So Peter of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. This is where Luke rejoins the party. You can tell by the first person plural there waited for us. So Luke was a part of this community as well. And sometimes a shared situation or circumstance brings people together. Community is often found in the midst of trouble. Even if you haven't known people for very long, when you have a shared crisis, it brings you together. I think you know, this is what has really happened with the true church over the last couple of years with this pandemic. I think it's brought people uh, together. I can think of many examples throughout uh, my journey of times when, you know, uh, you know, our family was brought together in a closeness of community through some crisis. I remember early on, uh, before we even had our first child, Wendy and I were candidating at a church, a country church in Illinois, and we ended up not taking the church, but the very Sunday that I was to preach that morning, uh, as we get to the church, everybody's, you know, there, there's tears and people are crying and and, and, you know, we didn't know what something had happened. We didn't know what. Well, it turned out two teenagers from the church family had been killed in a car accident the night before. Well, at that moment, 
you know, you're no longer candidating, you're shepherding. Changed my sermon, changed, you know, we just spent time in prayer and talking, but there we just bonded with those people who we'd only known for a day or two. You know, we'd come in on a Friday. And, and so crises tend to build uh, a community. That's why Paul says in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's why writing uh, 1 Corinthians, which again he wrote from Ephesus, he says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice. Talking about the body of Christ. If we go back to the text, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas. So these people in the shared situation, they reunite. They were all kind of helping Paul navigate through this difficult time. And if you long for community... Look for people with a shared situation. And then finally, uh, the story really gets interesting from here. I love this next section. You want to look for people with a shared supernatural experience. Nothing brings people together, builds community, like going through a mighty move of God together. When the Holy Spirit moved on the day of Pentecost, you know, some 23 years earlier, it created an instant bond for these first Christians. And no doubt they were still talking about that 23 years later. But as we've seen in our journey through Acts, there have been no shortage of other powerful supernatural experiences. I preached several weeks ago, months ago now maybe, on seeing the supernatural. And anyone who has experienced you know, shared miracles, supernatural occurrences, other mighty moves of God that are unusual, feels an unmistakable bond. That's called community. And Luke's uh, historical account here takes a kind of bizarre and somewhat humorous turn at this point. So he says, on the first day of the week, again, a clear indication here that the early church met on Sunday. Um, when the disciples came together to break bread, uh, the idea there of breaking bread can refer to an ordinary meal, and it can also refer to the Lord's Supper. Uh, it, it's not always clear from the context. Uh, but the early church did partake of the Lord's Supper together every time they met in, in obedience to the command of the Lord. It doesn't tell us how often to do that here at Plum Creek Chapel. We do it at least once a month and sometimes more. Uh, but the point is, when we came together to break bread, that could just mean they came together to eat. They were, they were having a meal together. And he says, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. The church uh, met at night because many people had to work. If they didn't work, they didn't eat. They were, their work was providing for their family. They didn't commute to a business office. Or they, they all worked basically for their family. And because Paul was leaving them, uh, and, and quite likely for the final time, he prolonged his message, his remarks, uh, until midnight. And we read, there were, Luke tells us, there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. Uh, of course, they didn't have electricity and all that, so they would have these lamps to light up the room. And and then here we are introduced to a young man named Eutychus. His name in Greek means fortunate, which as we're going to see is an appropriate name for this uh, young man. Uh, the Greek word used for young man here usually describes someone between the ages of 8 and 14. So here's this uh, young man named Eutychus sitting near a window, and he was sinking into a deep sleep. And uh, he <clears throat> eventually he gave in to his sleep, and... As Paul continued speaking, 
you can almost get the sense that Luke is being a little critical of Paul here. Uh, as Paul went on and on, this young man fell down from the third story window and was taken up dead. Uh, so the upper room where they were meeting was on the roof, which would constitute a third story. And uh, so he, he, he was taken up dead. Uh, one of my colleagues famously said, I'll never forget this, he said, if you're a preacher and have the gift of gab, you better also pray that you have the gift of raising the dead. Because uh, that's, what, that's what Paul had to do here. Um, uh, but it's actually comforting. J. Vernon McGee, that great uh, preacher, theologian, and, and wordsmith, he put it this way, I confess that Paul's experience has always been a comfort to me. When I look out at the congregation and I see some brother or sister out there sound asleep, I say to myself, it's all right, just let them sleep. Paul put them to sleep too. So there is, there is some comfort there. So he falls out the window, Luke tells us, Paul goes down, falls on him, and embracing him says, do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. So there's no doubt, in terms of the original text, that this is an instance of Paul raising a dead person back to life, similar to the way Elijah did, Elisha did, even Jesus, of course. So this is a, a, an experience that shows the miraculous power of Jesus Christ through, in this case, the Apostle Paul. Um, we see some similarities between this occasion and Peter raising Tabitha, or Dorcas was the other name, in chapter 9. Uh, so when, when uh, the text says, in the New King James anyway, his life is in him. In other words, Paul is saying, don't worry, he's no longer dead, he's alive. So now when, they had, when he had come up, back up to the upper room, uh, had broken bread and eaten it, again a reference there to just uh, having a meal together, and talked a long while, so he, he didn't allow you know, a simple little thing like somebody dying to interrupt his, his message. Um, you know what, I raised him from the dead, what, what more do you want? Let's get back up here, i got more to say, right? And uh, he talked a long while, even till daybreak, and then he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. So Luke closes his account here in verse 12 of this incident by assuring us that Eutychus was indeed all right, and that the believers in that community found great comfort in Paul's ministry of, rest, of restoration, uh, as well as, of course, in his teaching. And, you know, wouldn't you have liked to have heard what Paul said after this incident with Eutychus? I mean, he raises him from the dead. They come back up. And I, I imagine he talked about God's supernatural power, God's presence, God's validation of the gospel mission through this miracle of this a young man. Uh, I mean, these believers sat up all night listening to Paul. As far as we know, only one of them fell asleep, but maybe there were more. They just weren't sitting near windows. Um, you know, some people might say, well, if, if I could listen to Paul, I'd listen all night too. Well, the reality is, we don't really know. It's an argument from silence, but Paul was probably a pretty humble, average preacher of the gospel. Um, we know the Bible tells us that Apollos was particularly eloquent and a good preacher, but the Bible never says anything about Paul. seems like it would if he was known as being a great preacher. But these believers, they just were hungry for the Word of God. They wanted to hear more. Throughout the early church, it was the miraculous signs and wonders of God that helped build community. And by the way, the same thing is happening today as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. 
you know, the uptick in the spirit of phenomena that I talk about in volume two. There are supernatural things happening. The battle between God and Satan that is largely in the unseen realm of the heavenlies, according to Ephesians 6, is breaking over into the realm of the seen, the temporal, the earthly. And we're going to have more and more opportunities to have these shared supernatural experiences uh, together. Uh, the early church had community. Go back to chapter 8. The multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. And it brought them together. Or Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. All the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they recounted how many miracles and wonders God had done. See, you'd be surprised to know how many people have experienced supernatural things in their lives. Tell your story. And you'll be amazed at the stories that you hear in return. So we need community. The question is, are you looking for it? Look for people with a shared set of beliefs in a shared setting in some cases, with shared situations and life experiences that they have all brought to the table. So the takeaway is pretty simple. Just remember, you're not in this alone. And now more than ever, we need this community that just kind of shows up again and again in the normal course of events as we read through the early days of the church. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you again for just this fascinating account of the early church. It's just so exciting to read these stories and to see how you have been moving in the church for 2,000 years. Father, I pray that you would raise up men, women, and young people of faith to bond together in community, to share uh, the common salvation that we have with one another and to be there for each other. Help us to remember, ultimately, we're not alone because you are always with us. Your son promised to be with us wherever we go. But also, Lord, we have each other. So, Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. And, uh, Lord, we need you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we close.